Hey everybody, this is Megan Berg, speech-language pathologist in Western Montana, and this is the Therapy Insights Podcast. This is where we get to talk all about the counseling side of physical rehabilitation medicine. And I started this podcast because I know a lot of us never really got the chance to take a counseling course in grad school or have any kind of access to counseling resources, and yet... I would argue that at least 50% of our job kind of lives in the realm of counseling. And so that's what we get to talk about on this podcast. And today we're talking to Dr. Dennis Skaljardik. Dr. Skaljardik maintains a full-time private practice with locations in Houston and Beaumont, Texas. He provides clinical psychological and neuropsychological services for individuals ranging from ages 16 years and older. He works with a wide variety of medical diagnostic groups including traumatic brain injury, stroke, MS, brain tumors, neurodevelopmental, seizures, dementia, and memory disorders of aging, and other neurologically-based conditions. He also regularly provides cognitive rehabilitation and psychological interventions to assist in the adjustment and coping to health and medical-related problems. Previously, Dr. Skaljardik was the Director of Neuropsychology and Clinical Programs at a Residential Post-Acute Brain Injury Rehabilitation Program in Galveston County, Texas. He also maintains academic appointments as an adjunct professor in the Departments of Neurology and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. Please enjoy our conversation together. So what I want to do with this conversation is I've pulled different quotes from people who have survived brain injuries and these were posted on Mm brainline.org. And I think the quotes are a great starting point for different conversations and they spark some questions for me. So I'm just going to read the quote and then ask you the question. Please. So the first one is brain injury is, so these are like people who are Um, completing the sentence, brain injury is dot, 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 limiting, difficult, having to relearn things that you thought you already knew. So I think a lot of clinicians hear the phrase, like, I know how to do this. And it it comes from a place from the patient where it's kind of, it can be embarrassing, it can be belittling, it can be like, do they really think that I have never done this before in my life? It's like this need to convince the therapist that like they know how to do something, even though the brain injury has taken away that capacity from them and they do really have to relearn it. Um, So I think that can cause a little bit of tension and a little bit of discord because the therapist feels like they have to convince the person and maybe there's limited insight there as far as, you know, the, the lack of being able to do that skill anymore. And so then it becomes a conversation about, are you able to do this versus not able to do this? Um, and you kind of run the risk of losing sight of what the actual goal is. So I know a lot of therapists say things like, well, you could do this before, but you can't do it now. So that's why we're working on it. Um, but are there other ways to approach and acknowledge the skills and competency of the person having to relearn basic skills? Yeah. So I, I, uh, I uh, saw your email with, with these uh, quotes and, and some of the questions, so I, I reviewed them. Um, and, uh, you know, with the quote you had said, some therapists say, you know, you could do this before, but you can't do it now. So right there, the, the word can't sort of jumped up at me. You know, that, that's something that is going to, you know, any any individual with a traumatic brain injury is going to take that that 
negatively and, and that uh, that that could impact the rapport between the, the patient and the therapist. So I, would, I my my suggestion would be is just to be careful with any negative words, can't, won't, you shouldn't. Um, and and I, I, yeah, I usually always couched it in terms of these are your current limitations. These are these are your the obstacles that you're currently having with, with you know, with that said, it's implicitly understood that this may not be a problem for you down the road if you are willing to uh, accept the prescriptions that the therapists have given you in terms of working on, you know, A, B, C or D. So I would definitely be cautious about using can't and so on. Uh, but you brought up a good point. You know, for, first off, you have to gauge the level of awareness of the individual. So if you have someone who is very, you know, like you mentioned, uh, anosognosia, poor awareness, not not really aware of their limitations, uh, and in some cases very severe, you want to gauge it from that. Um, and if you feel that the person has a level of awareness, but they're just very depressed or upset about their current situation, they still could be very impulsive and still think, no, I can totally do this and not a problem. My recommendation to the therapist, any therapist, speech, PT or OT, would be take it a couple steps back. Start start on a task that's uh, or an activity that's pretty basic. Let the person gradually show that, and, and may, maybe they want to show show to, off to that that therapist. Say, I told you I can do this, and then say that's great. Let's why don't we try to up the challenge a little bit? Uh, so I think if you start at a, at a lower level, let the person feel that accomplishment. Let them almost brag like, yeah, I could do this. And then, you know, kick it up a few notches from there, but gradually, uh, because what I saw in all of my years working in a rehab facility is that some therapists, the ones that uh, are great therapists, but again, like you had mentioned earlier, not not all therapists have that level of training, uh, especially from the behavioral standpoint. Um, and they they come in with their their uh, prescribed therapies they want to do with that patient that day. But then all of a sudden they get smacked with the person's behaviors. And sometimes in that moment, you're like, I I have to hit these goals with this person, and now that the person is upset or, or what have you, I'm not going to meet meet those goals in this session, and that can cause a little bit of that strife or that little bit of a, a change in demeanor on, on both sides. So, um, I think also any therapist should start any initial uh, level of treatment by just talking to the patient about, well, what are some of the difficulties that you're having, and and when you hear the patient come back at you, that will help gauge the, their level of awareness. If the person has is completely, you know, a, a, a paretic of the lower extremities, and they're saying, "I would love to be able to walk out of this place," uh, you know, when uh, in in a few weeks. Now, you as the therapist will be able to determine that's very unrealistic at this point. Uh, definitely in the next few weeks. So that gives you an indication of the level of awareness, and that may help you then gauge uh, engage them a little differently or change your tactic with them. Uh, again, uh, time and time again, I see therapists just get very burnt out and, and frustrated, even though they're they're great at their trade and they love what they do and they love interacting with patients. You don't want to uh, uh, sort of mess up that relationship too, too early on. So mm -hmm. that, that would be sort of my take with that. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, the second quote that I saw somebody wrote, brain injury is a family affair when a family member has one, it affects everyone. And so I, I often see family members initially approach brain injury recovery as like a broken leg or a broken arm or like something that has like, it's pretty consistent patient to patient as far as the recovery timeframe. And it's just a matter of time. And like, they know what the expected outcome is going to be. Um, but 
that attitude of like waiting to see when things will be going back to normal can be a little bit limiting and it's difficult to go through the process of seeing and accepting a new normal and the fact that everybody's brain is different every brain injury is different and it's really hard for anyone to be able to really accurately gauge what's going to happen so what do you say to family members who are just at the very beginning of the journey? And do you have any like words that can help set realistic expectations right. for that kind of arduous journey of brain injury transformation, but also not squashing their hopes and dreams that things are going to go back to the way forward? Yeah, I, um, I actually, uh, uh, previously, I, I would actually do a lot of uh, presentations, or give a lot of presentations on caregiver burden and distress in individuals, uh, families with, with traumatic brain injury. Um, also, I came out with uh, an article uh, back in uh, 2015, and one of the sections were on caregiver burden and distress. It was a, a, a psychiatric disorder in post-acute brain injury. Um, and so when I was giving this presentation, the, the, the part of the presentation that really opened, and the, the, the presentation was primarily to uh, uh, case managers, nurses uh, in some of these facilities. And the, the slide that really opened up the eyes, and they, they, really, they would come back to me at the end of this, the, the talk say, thank you, this is some good information I could then impart to some of these families. Um, I was working with this one case manager at our facility, and she would said this one great line, because if you've seen one brain injury, You've seen one brain injury, and that really stuck with me because it makes a lot of sense, and and it really fit well, and and it made, helped a lot of the families understand. So the the way the, the way I sort of couched it was, well, let's say your loved one, God forbid, gets into a, a traumatic brain injury, and of course at that moment you're not thinking of the long term. You're thinking of is, and I'll use Johnny. I always use Johnny. Is Johnny going to live? Is Johnny going to be? Is he going to survive this horrific injury? That's all you think. That's all the family members thinking at that point. Will Johnny live? And and that's that that's makes common sense. You you, you want your loved one to live, um, and then they get into more of an acute care. Okay, Johnny's Johnny's alive. He's he's medically stable as what the doctor's saying, but he's still you know unconscious in a coma. We don't know what what Johnny's going to look like when he gets up. But he's breathing, and then then maybe Johnny starts to breathe independently, and and he's off the respirator, or you know, and so on. He's he's feet you know. Uh, still probably being fed by a peg tube. Uh, and then the person progresses an acute brain injury. And all of a sudden that person's working with the you know PTs, OTs, and speech paths. And that's when it starts to click in for some families of, okay, Johnny's gonna, Johnny's gonna have a rough, this is gonna be a, this is gonna be a marathon. Uh, and I express to the families in, in, just like that, that this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. Uh, this is gonna, uh, it's not like when someone breaks an arm, the, the brain, because a lot, a lot of times I would family say, well, how doctor, Something up here gets hurt, but Johnny's arm is not working or Johnny's leg is not working or, or his speech is, is the way it is. And, it, and I understand not everyone's going to understand neurology and, 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 and uh, brain mechanisms. So really the best thing first is to educate um, and also explain to them. Sometimes what Johnny's saying is not from his heart, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you'll get a lot. And down here in the South, we have a, a lot of uh, a great uh, – a lot of religious folks, and, and they probably never heard their child or loved one, you know, curse or cuss. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, that disinhibition comes out and uh, the impulsivity and then words are flying. And like, Johnny would never have said, I go, yes, that is true. I have no doubt. Uh, but Johnny's having some troubles right now. Uh, and I try never to say, this is Johnny now, because we all know with rehab, you know, the, the, the one great thing about brain injury is that that's, it's the one 
uh, uh, disorder, disease process that we all know gets better to some degree, right? When it comes to dementia and other, other types of neurological conditions, we know there's probably going to be more of a decline. But with traumatic brain injury and stroke, uh, we know that there's going to be an improvement, some level of improvement. So mm-hmm. I never tried to say this is the way Johnny's going to be from now on. But you want to make it very clear to them uh, that the brain controls these mechanisms. Uh, this is not a orthopedic type injury only, even though the person may have experienced polytrauma, uh, but that we want to uh, understand and educate them as best as possible, that this is this can this, this can improve, this can change, and this is how being in a rehab setting can help change this for, for Johnny to make things better, uh, but to, to let them know that this is not just an overnight or a few days in a hospital kind of deal uh, to get some PT or OT to help a, you know, a, a broken limb or something. This is a, this is a long haul. And I usually when I meant, when I give the analogy of the marathon versus the sprint, it sinks in, in my experience, in my, my 14, 15 years experience working like in, in that capacity, it seemed to have sink in better. Despite, despite the family, uh, the level of education of the family member, it, it just seems to sink in. And, uh, and that, that's another obstacle I think a lot of therapists also deal with, is that some families, they may come from rural areas, they may be uh, uh, not as educated and just don't understand. Uh, and I think taking that time, that five, 10 minutes, is really uh, the, the best way to do it. Um, another story I give, and this, one, this was early on in my career uh, uh, working at the facility, uh, we had a, a young couple and uh, they, they, had a, they had three young children, a nine-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. And the, uh, the husband, unfortunately, was in a severe, severe uh, motor vehicle accident. Um, and he was, he was the primary breadwinner for the family. So, of course, you can see in, in the wife's face, she was very concerned about what's going to happen. She had three young kids. Uh, of course, the one-year-old is sitting in the stroller, just oblivious, not you know, thinking, I just want to play with this toy, you know, which makes sense. The four-year-old was more of just antsy, squirming in their seat, you know, just what, why are we sitting in this meeting, this progress meeting? But the nine-year-old understood. The nine-year-old, you could see on, on that child's face, they knew something was wrong with dad. And it was that level of awareness. And I didn't have to sit and explain to the, the, the nine-year-old what had happened to their daddy. He understood. There was something there that he got. Uh, and I always remember that when I do, did speak with families to explain to them that, Sometimes what you see is what, you know, is, is real and this is what's going on. And this is not, this is from, because of the neurological injury uh, and this is going to be a process. And, 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 and like with that, that, that in, an individual, um, I was able to explain to the family, you know, this will get better, this will change, but we don't know exactly what the input's going to be, the, the, the last, uh, the, the outcome, so to speak, at the, at the, mm-hmm. at the end. So, so it, I think, again, to answer the question is just education is, is pivotal. Um, and uh, I think all therapists uh, that work in a facility like I did are, have, are equipped and in, in able to do that. Um, we also uh, provide a lot of education to our therapists. So we did provide, uh, uh, I would myself would, would provide lectures and, and, and talks to the therapist as the neuropsychologist for some who were new and maybe did not have a neuro- neurological rotation in their training and need to learn more about some brain behavior uh, processes. So mm-hmm. so I really thought it was incumbent upon myself as a neuropsychologist there to impart education not only to the families, but to the therapists so they felt yeah. more informed. Yeah. So that was important. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always, like, sometimes when I go to brain injury support groups too, and I'm just like... Uh-huh 
if they if they let me come and they give me permission, I'll just sit and observe. And I'm always shocked at like how much they can like survivors can connect with patients and families and communicate that message of like it takes a long time and we don't really know the answers in a way that I never could too. Right, and and it's again, it's not uh, it's. It's hard. And I've, I've also been to some of those support group meetings and, and you will still see the families uh, who have now been, you know, with their loved one 20 years post injury mm-hmm. and still talking about the difficulties and the strife, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I think when a, a family that has an individual that was more recently injured, it's very comforting for them. I know it sounds horrible. Yes, even 20 years later, there's still all these difficulties, but I think it's comforting to know that they're not alone that what they're experiencing, other people are experiencing as well. But to be that sponge, to listen to that family after 20 years post-injury, to hear what their, uh, lack of a better term, sort of tricks of the trade have been in, in either redirecting, uh, uh, de-escalating, um, uh, also with other physical demands, you know, with uh, transfers and, and, and issues with uh, at the commode or, or uh, a whole slew of other behaviors that I'm sure they all deal with um, mm-hmm. and, and how that impacts the family. And really what I was uh, when I was giving that presentation a lot with, in terms of caregiver burden, I would also break it down by the spouse, the, you know, the, the children, the offspring and how they can all be uh, impacted differently by by the, the injury. But um, and I also also gave another analogy too when I was giving these talks. If you think of uh, caregiver burden and distress in in, multi, in other populations, like you think Alzheimer's, right? There's so much research out there, probably going back a good thirty plus years on caregiver burden and distress in Alzheimer's. But if you really look into caregiver burden and distress in traumatic brain injury or acquired brain injury, is there's not as much. There's been a great a great amount in the last decade or so, but before that, not as much. Uh, with with Alzheimer's, uh, for example, we, we know that that's a degenerative process. So it's more about uh, helping the family member identify the, their troubles, but then also rallying around the support to then uh, you know help with that 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 person's eventual decline. With brain injury, we know that the person could be physically healthy and live for a long time. And it's like I said earlier, it's not a decline. Typically, the person will make a lot of improvements physically, cognitively, and whatnot. Um, and it's the long haul. So uh, the, the the kind of advice you give to some a family with traumatic brain injury versus a family with Alzheimer's, it's going to be different. And, and the message has to be delivered in a certain way that they understand. Because again, it's going back to that whole marathon versus sprint kind of a mm-hmm. scenario in, in that situation. So, so it is difficult, but at the same time, um, uh, it, it really goes back to education, like I mentioned earlier. It's just, it's just really important. So, yeah. Absolutely. This podcast episode is supported by the Therapy Insights Access Pass. Get instant access to over a thousand digital downloads, including patient education handouts, clinical tools, and therapy materials. Get on-demand access to courses from a range of clinical experts designed to advance your therapy practice. Stay up to date with the latest research with summaries of recently published research in the library of article snapshots. Spend less time reinventing the wheel and more time connecting with your patients. Elevate your clinical practice with a suite of functional, evidence-based, person-centered therapy resources on demand at your fingertips. Simply click, download, print, and go. Created by and built for speech, occupational, and physical therapists with new content added monthly. 
Sign up for the Access Pass today at therapyinsights.com. Okay, next quote is, brain brain injury is the feeling of worthlessness when I let someone down because something that's supposed to be important just slips out and they think I'm doing it on purpose. Another person says, I feel worthless, not accepted, emotional, very angry, agitated, no control in my own life, tired, dazed, hurt, misunderstood, ugly, non-balanced in walking, suicidal. So I think brain injuries put people in a position where they know that someone is upset with them or there's something wrong, Mm -hmm. but they don't maybe always understand why or remember what happened to lead to that situation. Um, So do you find that people often take on the identity of the brain injury itself based on the way that they are treated? So they think like, I am worthless rather than my brain just didn't remember that at that moment. And how do you have conversations about the truest identity of the person? Do you have any language that you use with patients to differentiate the injury from their core human identity that doesn't go away when their brain is injured? Yeah, the to, to step away from the patient themselves for just a moment, the, the one thing that used to really get me upset, uh, I don't mean like very upset, but, but concerned where I would maybe even address it with the therapist was when, you know, oh my God, you know, Johnny is such a, he's acting like such a jerk, you know, a, a brain injury patient. And, uh, and I would just remind them that oh, sometimes they would attribute it to pre-morbid personality. Oh, oh the, the, the wife had said to me, this is the way Johnny acts sometimes. And I'm like, listen, there's a whole slew of reasons why Johnny may be behaving the way he is. And the reason he's here is because he had a brain injury. And we have to assume that a lot of the behaviors that we're seeing are from the brain injury. So we have to accept that and work with that, despite what he may have been beforehand. And me, me personally... Uh, when I was working uh, there, I didn't, uh, for some reason, and I thought it helped me in, in my therapeutic process in working with the patients was I didn't like to see pictures or other information about the person pre-injury. Um, you know, if you went into their residence, they would also have pictures of them with family members from, of course, before the injury. Um, and uh, I didn't like to see that because I, I really, to me, that it, it sort of set me up in my maybe unconsciously of like, oh, that's a goal. I, I have to get that person back to that. And I know that that's not always going to be the case. I wanted to work with them on the goals that were set during the progress meetings and, and the, the initial meetings with the patient and, and going forward from that. Um, but uh, to go now to the patient, it, it also, again, uh, the, it depends on the person's awareness. You know, they, they mm-hmm. of course, if they're not aware, they're going to think I'm t- totally fine. I'm great. Why am I here? I don't want to be here. I'm stuck in this facility for two months. I just mm-hmm. want to go home. And sometimes uh, the, the families agree to that and they go home and, and within about two or three weeks, we get a phone call back from the family member. Can you please take Johnny back? Uh, Johnny's not ready to be home because all he wants to do is sit down and watch TV. And that was clearly not his uh, demeanor uh, or personality before. Um, but uh, the, the person, um, yes, So the, for those that do have more insight into their injury and their limitations, yes, I think they... I don't. I wouldn't say they they take on the role of the brain injured person, um, and I always made it very clear uh, uh, with, uh, especially with some of our residential or direct care staff, who, again, not not no no fault of their own. They didn't have the level of training that myself and some of the other therapists had had. 
uh, they would speak to or converse with or maybe treat the brain injured individual uh, a little differently. I, dare I say, almost a little childish in some cases. And I, I always took it, in, in, my, in my opinion, was I always spoke to the person because they're all adult patients. As an adult, I would speak to them as I would with any other person. I wanted them to feel that I, I, am, I, am, I am an individual, I am an adult, I'm not a child, and I, I may be aware of my limitations. And I, it, it may be horrible that I have to have someone assist me in the commode and, and do all these things that were, were, are, are embarrassing. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that is rough. And I, that, that's, I think, the one thing I saw most uh, that the, the person got most upset or depressed about was the level of dependence that they needed. Um, and in some of the more, you know, situations when, of course, we, we, we would obviously opt for privacy and, uh, and so on in certain, in certain environments, that you needed another individual there for safety reasons or so on. Uh, and those are, the, those are the instances where if they, the person had to be excused to go to the restroom and then they came back to a session, that's when I saw most of the frustration and anger. Uh, and mm -hmm. sometimes the session was almost done because that person just, they felt humiliated. They felt, uh, you know, the, clearly, you know, I'd never need, I'm 35 years old. I never needed someone to help me do that before. So there's that level of acknowledgement. Um, and I think if that does happen time and time again, that person could, their, their mood can definitely get worse and worse and worse over time. And I think that's when those challenges pop up in, in session. The person is just so despondent. They just don't want to interact. They have this feeling of what's the point. I mean, I'm at the level of someone has to help me in the commode. And you're now, you know, as a speech path or uh, you want to help me, you know, speak more clearly or the PT wants. It. And it's, it's a hard sell. It really is a hard sell. Um, and I think that's when uh, it's important to have psychology on board at any kind of facility so that yes. the psychologist can intervene and, 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 and really help that person go through that process. Uh, which, which unfortunately is not so much the the trend these days in some of these more post-acute type facilities. Mm -hmm. There's not much representation of neuropsychology and psychology. Um, it's it's definitely a, a sort of a it, it's it's a passing fad unfortunately these days, um, and that's what's really needed. So either uh, facilities need to help train the the the, the speech paths, PTs and OTs more in these kind of interventions and, and de-escalation situations, or not to say that they become de facto psychologists, but at least to acknowledge and be aware of when a person's feeling a certain way and and know when maybe a psychologist needs to be consulted in or something to uh, uh, to, uh, to work with that individual. So so the, yes, I, I do agree, um, but I don't. I, I think the person not wanting, uh, taking on that role, not so much. Um, I, unless their awareness is such where they really don't know uh, what their actual level is, or um, uh, th then I, I've seen those people become more okay with getting the help. Uh, mm -hmm. Where the, the folks that have uh, much improved awareness, they are the ones that become more refusal. They don't want right. the help. I can do this myself. Of course, there may be some level of impulsivity in there and so on. But again, uh, it, it, there is that level of embarrassment and pride, which uh, makes total sense for any adult to have. Uh, but when you don't understand why, uh, that's when I think uh, uh, things can get a little, little uh, challenging. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword because it's always like, how do we improve insight? How do we make them more aware? And then the insight and awareness improves. But with that, comes a whole other level of responsibility for therapists to honor the dignity of the, of the person. Yeah. And I see this in just lots and lots of little ways. Like um, 
I saw somebody brought somebody their watch and instead of giving it to the person and letting them put the watch on themselves, they did it for them. Or like serving a meal, they take all the cup, you know, all the lids off and they make everything so that the person doesn't have to do anything for themselves, which on one hand is good if they can't do it, but if they can do it and it just takes a little bit more time, yeah. then we should be allowing them to do that. Yeah, I saw uh, time and time again, I would see um, a patient in, in the early time of uh, after their admission, they would, you know, I, when I was a director, particularly, they would come up to me and say, you know, Dr. Z, that one physical therapist she is a such and such and such. She won't do this for me and that for me. I said, well, sir, that's not her job. Her job is to facilitate or to assist you and to treat you. But the goal of you being in rehab is to start doing some of these things on your own. And, and of course, activities or, or situations where the therapist is, feels that you are capable of doing. Um, and, it, and then it, then it comes like uh, three months later when the person's on their discharge meeting and then they're like, to the, that, that particular therapist, you know what? Thank you so much. Thank you. You, 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 you pushed me when I didn't want to be pushed, but it was for the right reason uh, so that I can accomplish those things independently. And now after three months, I can do that by myself. And I, I don't need anyone's help where when I first came here, I needed someone to really help me with that. So, so there is that also that evolution in some of these patients as well. They're coming in, they're upset, they're angry. And if you can imagine yourself on your worst day when you're upset or angry, you don't want to do certain things. You may not want to go to work. You may not want to do certain activities. You just want to be on your own. Imagine feeling that way almost every day. Mm -hmm. And and, and the, the, the burden that it, there is on the therapist to start at the top of that hour, say, okay, Johnny, we have to now do this, this, this in PT. There's probably going to be a level of pain that's going to hurt. As we all know, most traumatic brain injury patients do experience a level of pain. Um, and imagine feeling down and then you're going to go into a situation where you're going to have physical pain and not seeing that level of progress in a session uh, that you would hope to see. So it, it, it definitely, again, going back to the, the I think, the need for uh, more psycho uh, psychology uh, in there or at least uh, training in, in, uh, in yes. and Yes. And that's the problem. And I, what you said is like the pressure that therapists feel and it, it just speaks to the larger problem. If, if we're not integrating mental health into the training of speech and occupational and physical therapists, and then providing a structured environment in the professional clinical setting where there is men, our mental health resources available, then it is this sense of like, all right, my session starts now, hit, you know, the clock is running. <laughs> And then there's so much pressure to be doing something functional 100% of the time when it's really, I think, 50% mental health, 50% functional restorative right. therapy. And when you don't have a cohesive collaboration or agreement between all of these different entities, it's just, it doesn't work. And I think, and what I also have seen work a lot in the past too is, is uh, uh, some therapists uh, who are obviously very you know versed in traumatic brain injury and, and understanding the behavioral aspect of it, they would they would start a session with like almost a negotiation. Say, okay, Johnny, uh, you know the, these are the these are the let's say there were two goals, but they may say, okay, these are the five goals that we need to try mm -hmm. to finish. And usually a patient will say, well, I'm not going to do five, but I'll do those two. And that is, it seems a little deceptive, but again, the the goal here is to get that individual to do certain activities as prescribed, uh, but also to say, you know, Johnny, if you can 
if you can do this activity with me for 10, 15 minutes, then we'll, we could take a five minute break and we, we could just let you uh, relax. Or, or if you want to go on the recumbent bike or do something that you feel comfortable doing, and then we'll re-engage. So I've seen that level of negotiation happen all the time in therapy across the board. And I, I think it works great uh, because it, it, it empowers the patient. It gives them some say. Um, and, and again, uh, going back to empowerment, uh, that, that's another thing that uh, I see therapists and direct care staff get into to, um, uh, arguments or not, I shouldn't say arguments, but into uh, 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 situations with patients where the patient just gets so frustrated. Um, it, it's, there is that level of negotiation that's important. You want to make sure that the, uh, the, the patient has some say uh, in, in their therapy. Their life, yeah. Yeah, if they're just being told you need to do this, and that's and I, I'm I'm the professional, you have to do this. But if you can couch it in a way where they have some say into it, uh, and again, imagine uh, you're you're a speech pathologist. Imagine you have an individual in your in your um, in your your therapy room. They're in a wheelchair. Physically, they really can't do much. They're also maybe aphasic or or have dysarthria. They really their communication skills are poor. Uh, they don't have really a, any other way to really express themselves uh, or, or, uh, or get their uh, feelings or their, what they want to say out. So what are they going to do? They show aggression, right? Mm -hmm. That's their way of showing power uh, they, uh, because they, they know that they've lost power in so many other aspects because of their limitations. So that's when you're going to see a much greater chance of acting out physically, verbally, refusals. That's where you're going to see that a lot more. Um, so again, I think if you can negotiate with the patient in the beginning of a particular session, especially if you know that they had a bad day and then, uh, you know, we always had our internal messaging at the facility where we say, okay, you know, Johnny, uh, at his nine o'clock session, he really had a rough day. Psychology came in, talked to him. So just FYI, the rest of the day may be rough. And then once you get that information out, then the, the 10 o'clock session would say, okay, you know, I, I heard what uh, they said at nine o'clock. Let me, let me talk to Johnny the first five minutes, maybe just see how he's doing, see these are certain goals. Hey, Johnny, this is what I want to work with you on. How do you, what do you think? And then let, let the negotiations begin. And I, you usually will get a much better outcome if it's understood at the beginning of the session what the, the plan is. Also having the patient have a say in that plan. You'll get a much better outcome most of the time. Yep. Yeah, I always think refusals, for the most part, are a reflection of us. They're not really a reflection of the patient. And so, yeah, I, I, I can, yeah, I, I would agree with you on that one as well. Okay. Next quote is brain injury is as if you are the walking dead haunting your loved ones. Sometimes they see a flicker of the part they knew, but only for a brief moment. And this quote made me think really more about like, um, people with brain injury in their closest relationships. So these might be like romantic partners, um, you know, really close family members. How do you help people with brain injuries navigate the changes in their very, very closest relationships of their lives? Yeah. And that's uh, when I was reviewing some of these statements and quotes here, I, I thought that was really the, the that's the hardest one uh, because um, the, the relationships that are impacted the most are the ones with the close family members. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, in, in all, I would say the majority of my sessions, uh, and by the time someone had come to, to our facility in a post-acute uh, situation, it could have been, you know, some, in some cases, six months or, or more uh, after the, the, the injury onset. And they'll say, you know, Dr. Z, 
in, in the time when I was at the acute care facility, there the could not have been enough flowers and balloons and family members coming in and, and, and seeing me and, you know, Hey buddy, I can't wait for you to come back so we can go have that barbecue and do this again, like we used to and so on. And then months passed and the person is still getting rehab. They're, they're clearly not recovered from their injury. And they're like, you know, Doc, all those people that came to give flowers and bring balloons and, and say, hey, buddy, we're going to hang out again like we did uh, last time, they, they disappear. Where do they go? You know, they, they're not coming around. No, no one's coming to visit me at the facility except maybe, you know, my spouse, partner, you know, child, whatever. Um, and that, that really, that, in my experience, that's what impacted the folks the most. They just felt like, what happened to all that love? You know, where, where did all that go? Um, and I think that then results in the only relationships that they're dealing with on a regular basis are the family members. You know, uh, the, the, before the injury, the person may have had a job and they went to work and they had the work relationships. They went home. They had the home relationships. They hung out their buddies or friends. They had the, those relationships. And then the relationships become so narrow where it's just the partner, just the, the child or, or, or situation. And those relationships get very strained very fast. Um, you and I, and again, going back to the sort of marathon and sprint analogy, I've had to tell some family members that like, no, no, but you know, Johnny's here. I want to be with him all the time. And I would say, that's, that's fine if you want to stay or, or hang around a lot the first week, but you need to eventually go. And I, and I, and I try not to sound rude, but I try to make this point. Number one, if Johnny gets too comfortable with you being around all the time, you are going to become this emotional crutch. Johnny needs to learn some space from you, uh, just you know, regardless of the, the relationship, whether it's a spouse or 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 or, or, a, or a, a offspring or whatnot. And and Johnny can use some of the therapists and other folks here as a de facto social you know socialization you know. But they need that separation. Number two, the family member needs to re-engage in the things they need to do for their own self. And because I've noticed it time and time again, the family member like, no, 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 I'm going to be here for my husband all the time, every day, every session. I'm going to sit there and so on. And little by little, they're neglecting the other things in their lives. They then become not as well equipped to care for their injured loved one because they're now suffering because they either stopped going to work or they stopped taking care of themselves or they unfortunately neglected other family members. So I'm like, stay the week. But then go back. It's okay. Your loved one's safe here. They're being taken care of. You can call them or or Zoom with them, whatever it is after afterwards. But uh, and so on. But um, that's the relationship that gets impacted the most. But I also saw when there was a level of separation while the person was engaged in therapy and the loved one was able to leave and do other things, that relationship seemed stronger than the ones when the person stayed almost all the time at the facility. Uh, and, uh, and, and you would see much more uh, battles uh, between them or, or uh, arguments. Uh, the, and also the loved one would see a lot of the negative behaviors of that person in therapy. And it would, it, it would just sort of, sort of solidify for them their own perceptions and so on. So really that separation is best. You want to see someone grow. And to have be away for a few days or a few weeks, it, it was the best. But um, and also they have to get themselves prepared because I, I would make it very clear to the family, Johnny's going to come home. You know, Johnny's not going to be here forever at this facility. He will come home or or some whatever definition of home will be for, for him. But 
Uh, you need to be prepared uh, to make that transition as best and smooth as possible, but not only for Johnny, but for yourself. Because again, going back to the marathon sprint scenario, this is going to be a long haul, depending on, uh, of course, on the level of uh, impairment uh, in, in the individual. So, so there's a lot there. There's a lot there to unwind and unwrap. Um, and again, I would, I would always, after I, I, we had our initial meeting with the, the patient, I would pull in the family member into my office or, or stay there in the conference room with him and say, what are your concerns? What are, mm -hmm. I mean, and of course, there's, you know, I mean, your, your, your obvious concerns about Johnny going home and what's going to happen. And they would tell you there. And I would be very blunt in telling you, look, I think what you're doing right now, behaviorally, you know, being around him so often is not the best. But doctor, I, I love him and I need to be around him. I said, yes, you do. We all know that you love your, your loved one. But I think you're, to some degree, you're doing a disservice. Um, okay. And that bluntness doesn't sometimes go over super well. But again, it's needed. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a straight path to codependency. And you can look at you know, other types of relationships where the identity becomes wrapped up into, I'm going to save this person. I'm, and then yes. the person with the brain injury gets wrapped up into that dynamic. And then that's how resentment builds. And that, like you're saying, that's just not a great foundation right. for a long-term relationship. Right. And, and then, and God forbid when, uh, if the, the individual, not God forbid, but when the individual becomes more aware and then they're like, well, where is my wife? Where is my husband? Why are they not here? Now, again, any loved one's going to feel hurt when they feel like, oh, oh my gosh, I was not there for him. You know, like, oh my gosh. And that, and that's the biggest uh, hurdle that I, I try to explain to family members. It's going to hurt. There's no doubt about it. I will give you that. But in the end, you're doing the best thing for him or her by keeping a certain level of distance, keeping the, you know, keeping the visitations to the weekends, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. Uh, but you're, like you said, it, it, it definitely redefines the relationship if that person does not keep that certain level of, of separation and distance because then all of a sudden that becomes for the, the brain of the individual that may become the expectation mm -hmm. and when they transfer home then that loved one all of a sudden it feels locked in like oh my god i can't leave him alone because he always expected me to be there at the facility now he always expects me to be here at home and she that person has a difficult time doing that yeah. all right Next quote is brain injury is like your old life is at the end of a long tunnel. And no matter how much you try to reach it, the tunnel just keeps getting longer with each step forward. So we had already kind of discussed that brain injury recovery is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, do you have any other things you want to talk about or thoughts as far as how to discuss progress? in brain injury recovery, which can feel slow and pointless to many survivors. And I've often heard like, what does it matter? Like, and I think a lot of times even their perception, like I will see extraordinary progress. And unless I'm explicitly like outlining that and defining kind of the different progress points for them, it's hard for them to see it. No, definitely. And uh, and I think this is a good place to even mention, uh, uh, you know, recreational therapists and their role, uh, which, again, uh, some, like some of the psychologists and neuropsychologists is also not not as prevalent in some of these uh, uh, facilities these days as well. Uh, you know, the rec therapists play a huge role in that sort of in between. You know, you uh, you have uh, the individual working with the, the psychologist or behavioral therapist and they, they're engaging in OTPT speech. But then there's that time like, well, 
part of my life is recreation. I mean, I, I enjoy doing A, B, C, or D, and now I have a difficult time doing it. And uh, the rec therapist to come in there to sort of help bring that part of their, their lives back to say, look, it's okay to, you have to work to, get, to make your improvements, but there should also be a time to engage in your recreational activities. And, you know, they'll help identify what are some of the things they'd love to do before and say, okay, I can help provide these modifications to equipment or, or uh, locations or environment to help you still engage in that activity recreationally, but in a safe and, and, and productive uh, manner. Um, and uh, so I think that that's a huge plus. Uh, and I, I, I was so proud uh, when we did have all those disciplines available uh, at the facility uh, and, uh, you know, things morphed and evolved over time. And, and but uh, when, when, that, when that whole team was together, I really thought the outcomes were optimal for the patient because they got a little bit of everything and what they needed. Um, and uh, uh, it, it is hard to explain to that person. Um, especially if a length of stay, our average length of stay was somewhere between three, maybe three months. Uh, in some cases earlier, early on, it was much longer, but usually about three months. Um, and we know that once they leave the facility, you know, we don't want to make this understanding that, oh, oh, you leave the facility, rehabilitation is over, you're done, you graduated, you know, you're, 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 you're good to go. We explain to them that, again, this, this is going to be a, progress, a process that will last probably most of your lifetime. Uh, but to explain to them, we need to hit the goals that we set while you're here. And I think if you can really address, if the, if the goals are realistic, that's very important. And I, I'm sure therapy, yourself and other therapists really do, do your best to make the most realistic goals. And when if when I, uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard, it, it is hard. There's no doubt about it. And, and I, I tell families all the time, you know, I don't have a crystal ball in front of me. I cannot say exactly how Johnny's going to look like in three months. But given the severity of the injury, given my neuropsychological evaluation, given the progress that we've, or excuse me, the initial uh, PTOT speech evaluation we've seen thus far, we can come up with a general idea of where Johnny may be in about three months. But again, I don't have my crystal ball, so I cannot say for sure this is where he's going to be. I never like using 100%, the, the, the term like, oh, you'll make 100%. No, no, no. Uh, and, and I think if, if the therapist, the family, and even the patient can come up with very realistic goals, that's when I think the, the individual could leave the facility feeling most accomplished. Yeah. Um, and also then addressing the, the unrealistic goals in a, in a safe environment. So when the, the person who maybe, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, comp, uh, have a, a, a huge spasticity or, or, you know, increased tone of their lower extremities, and they are not going to be walking out of the facility in three months. But they're saying, um, my, my graduation goal, Dr. Z, is I'm going to walk out of here. I say, okay, well, let's talk about that. Well, you know, uh, what, what makes you think at this level that that's going to be possible? Well, I'm doing this in therapy and that in therapy. I said, well, Johnny, I, I heard from your therapist that you were refusing a lot of sessions. Well, you know, I, I was just upset that day. I said, okay, well, if you want to make any, uh, any steps towards that goal, uh, you need to engage in all your, your sessions. Okay, doctors, yeah, I could do that, sure. I say, okay, well, let's also educate you on on the, the, the level of impairment that your lower extremities are and why why you may, may be able to use a wheelchair independently leaving here or, uh, you know, use a walker or some other sort of assisted, assisted device to help you walk out of here. But you may not be able to independently walk out here without an assistive device. And I think once you educate them and you, you, you throw out the, the options, you know, you can walk out of here with this device or 
maybe with a motorized chair or something to that effect, then that sort of helps couch it a little bit better for them. And you'd be surprised to see how, how they are able to refine their own goals uh, mm -hmm. over time, which yeah. is important. Yeah. So. For sure. And um, I, I said, sometimes we're good at creating functional goals. There's a, an ongoing conversation in the speech pathology world for whatever reason, for a very long time now, we've had some pretty nonsensical goals, you know, like people will write goals, like the patient will remember five items from a list with 90% accuracy or whatever. And just trying to shift those goals to be like, they will remember their address. They will remember their phone number. They will remember their grandkids names or something functional. That's very measurable. That really does matter when they go home to increase their independence. And, 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 and I think that goes back to what you and I were initially discussing at the very beginning of the session was uh, every discipline comes in with their criteria, right? You know, as a speech mm -hmm. pathologist, you have your noms, you have to follow uh, and, and the goals that you need to set as you, per your training and licensure. And we totally understand that. Uh, OTs will have their way, PTs will have their way and so on. And I think it is hard sometimes to break away from that um, and to say, okay, that may have worked maybe with a different population earlier in my training or in, in some of the other facilities I worked in, mm -hmm. but maybe I should change that thinking a little bit in, in a Branger population. You know, how important is it that by the next session, you know, the person will have 80% accuracy in learning, you know, five words. Uh, but, and I've seen some great speech pathologists, just for an example, just totally change that up a little bit, make it more functional, more realistic to that person's life. And you're still hitting the, the, your, your goals, at least by, by your licensure and so on, but you, you've, you've changed it. You modified it based on that population. I think any successful therapist that works in brain injury, if they are malleable and they're willing to morph with the environment and the situation, they will be a successful therapist and they will get the most outcomes from their patients. And I've seen it happen. I'm sure you and others have seen it as well. Absolutely. All right, got a couple more. Next one is brain injury is being accused of being manipulative and lying. So let's talk about right brain injuries for a minute with those classic signs of anosognosia and confabulation. How do we engage in conversations that address those concepts in a concrete way without inducing shame or guilt or denial or getting like locked into an argument again about like the reality of what's happening. Um, how do we engage in conversations with families about where this behavior is coming from without making them feel like it's their responsibility to bear the burden of the behavior. So it's kind of like, I feel like these are the classic challenges that particularly SLPs, OTs, PTs don't have a lot of training. It's like we have a lot of training in understanding right hemisphere brain injuries, but when it comes to behavior, I think we get a little bit lost. Yeah, no, and uh, you know, the, the, I think the, 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 the one thing to take away from, the, uh, from my response to this question is don't, don't, don't allow yourself to get into any kind of argument with the patient. That, that's the last thing. If that, that should be your ultimate goal is to come out of that, that confrontation or, or situation as I'm not here to uh, upset the person. I'm not here to argue with them because if the person is that unaware, if they're, they're having that much difficulty in the environment, knowing what's going on, you know, it's not a bad thing. And, and, and I, 
I said earlier about using deception. Deception is not bad in brain injury. And I know it sounds horrible, but it's, it's not. As long as your intent and, and, and you're, you're trying to achieve a successful goal, using some level of deception with the patient, especially if someone is very confused and very unaware, is okay. Because you want to make sure they're safe. That's the first and foremost is that they're safe. You are, while you may be sort of being deceptive in certain ways, trying to explain to them, no, Johnny, you're wrong. You're not, you're not back in Missouri. You're, you're down here in Southeast Texas and you're at a rehab facility and this is what's going on. You had an injury. I did not have an injury, Dr. Z. There's no way. I'm in Missouri. It's, it's maybe a little unseasonably warm down here in Texas. I mean, down here, up here in Missouri, but it's, I, I'm in Missouri. I'm not in Texas. I'm like, okay. So for me to then start pulling out a map, or, you know, go taking them outside and say, see that sign that says you're in Texas. That's not it's not going to it's not going to achieve anything for me because he will that person will just get more incensed, more upset <clears throat> and probably just sort of stick to their guns even more so. Um, yeah. There was a situation once and uh, the, the, this story is probably one of my uh, my, my best stories. <clears throat> it was early on again in, in my career there at the facility. And we had a young kid, probably oh God, maybe 19, 20. He had a horrible motorcycle accident, but uh, physically was able to get around and, and do great. But again, just like you mentioned in your question, uh, poor, poor uh, uh, awareness, confabulating uh, like crazy. Um, and uh, we were having a, a graduation ceremony for a few patients. And, you know, he just got up, got upset and he walked out to one of the, the hallways. So, of course, uh, as the behavioral therapist that I had walked out and followed him and made sure he was safe. Um, and uh, I'm like, well, you know, again, I'll use Johnny. Johnny, where, where are you going? Oh, well, my father's coming. Okay. All right. and, and which could have been true. His father may have come to come visit him. I, don't, I didn't know. And I said, well, okay, your father's coming. Are you guys, he's just coming to visit you? No, no, no. He's taking me uh, taking me uh, out of here. I said, okay. Where are you guys going to go? Well, he's, he's taking me to Hogwarts. Oh, he's taking me to Hogwarts. Okay. And this is, you know, probably like 05, 06 when, you know, Harry Potter was really, really mm -hmm. big. Uh, and he was very, I'm going to Hogwarts. That's where I'm going. I said, okay. So I, I could have sat there, of course, uh, and maybe another lay individual would have said, no, you're, what are you talking? So I just sort of went with it. I said, really, well, what are you, what are you, you going to do when you get there? And uh, he just went into, we're going to do this. And clearly, clearly there was some wizard and other magical things that he was describing. Uh, but I, I just slowly brought it down and said, well, okay, you know, let's, why don't we go back into the other room where they're having that little celebration over there and we'll wait for your father. You know, we'll just wait for him. Turns out the father was not going to show up. There, there was no plan for the father to show up. So I just sat there with him. We talked and uh, uh, let him just sort of calm down a little bit. And once that he de-escalated, and I did not, I did not question or or say, "Look, you're wrong. You're not, you're not going to Hogwarts. You're not going anywhere. You're, you're hanging around here." It eventually sort of just went, you know, subsided. Uh, I'm not saying that it was the last time he did that, but it clearly, it, it it sort of it was calming to say. All right, this guy is not disagreeing with me. He's taking me back. I'll agree to come back over here and just hang out until my dad comes and takes me to Hogwarts. And little by little, it didn't happen. Um, and I, I think later that evening, he may have uh, escalated again. But again, it, it was not at the same level that it was uh, before. So I think really that level of deception in those patients and, and, the, and the individuals are really having poor awareness and, 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 and are confabulating a lot is if you sat there as a therapist and said, nope, that's wrong. Nope, that's wrong. You're wrong there. You're wrong everywhere. That person is just going to up that level of agitation and you are going to be in a world of hurt because that person is not, they're not going to relent. They are going to keep coming at you and keep telling you what they think is going on. So my, my advice is 
assess the awareness and uh, do not uh, uh, be argumentative, sort of. I used to always sort of say it as it's like a dance. You, you, you have your dance partner, whether you're the lead or not. You just go with the motion. You go with the flow, mm -hmm. but always ensure that you're not stepping on the person's toes. You want to make sure that everyone's safe. Uh, and usually the outcomes are better when you do that. And you're not you're not hurting the person's uh, emotions. You're not hurting their feelings because they're not aware. Uh, you are being deceptive, but you're doing it with the ultimate goal to make sure the person is safe. And I think that is a total fine and a good tool, a therapeutic tool to use in those situations. It's interesting because we understand that about dementia. And that's that's a shared value, I think, across therapists is like you follow that, like you follow their lead and you're staying present with them and you're going with the flow of whatever situation their mind is in. But it's not something that's not a concept we apply to brain injury, because I think especially speech therapists, or maybe I'll just speak for all speech therapists, is like you feel this pressure of like, I have this goal to help you get oriented. And if I'm not correcting you, then I'm not doing my job. But if we are correcting them, we're ruining our rapport and we're like shredding that trust. And we're really not going to make any progress with orientation if the trust but then, but then maybe that's not a good goal at that time. And that's mm -hmm. a goal that maybe you should trash for, and maybe bring it back at a later time. So I, I'm sure that the, the speech path and any other therapist has multiple goals that they can work with the person. So you know what? Right. Orientation is not a goal. I'm just not, it's not necessary at this point. The person is so unaware that I can tell this person that today is, you know, June 19th, 2021 until uh, I'm blue in the face. And they're going to keep telling me it's, you know, 1992 in March of, uh, you know, the, the second it's not going to help. It's not. So if, if you had other goals with their dysarthria or some, some of the hit those goals, don't don't worry about orientation. And if it's so if you just want to keep saying in your notes, person's unaware, person's disoriented, that's that's OK. Because, again, um, now I'm, I'm sure in facilities you've worked in, you may have implemented some level of like a memory notebook or something that the person carries with them that has all the information. Um, and you can engage, uh, engage that person by flipping through the page and say, oh, you know, Johnny, what, what is, what year is it right now? Oh, 1992. Well, let's look, let's see what the book says. Oh, the book says it's 2021. Wow. I must be way off. It's still 1992, doctor. Oh, okay. Uh, and you move on. It's, it's not worth that battle because if anything, if, if you did not get that person to be oriented, if that was a goal, if you did hit the goal where the person actually cracked the memory book open to look, that is a much bigger achievement than having them say the correct year, because that that memory notebook is their memory. So if you can engage that person to use that tool, then you've succeeded more in your session than you probably think you did. Right. That's important. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I think we can all think of all of the memory notebooks sitting around yeah. not being touched right now. <laughs> exactly. Collecting dust. Yeah. All right. Um, last quote, mm -hmm. brain injury is isolation, emotional roller coaster, suicidal, invisible, a different person, overreact, angry at doctor's lack of understanding, miss normal interactions and activities. Have you ever had a rehab therapist tell you that a patient is non-compliant with therapy and dismiss them from their caseload? And I will totally admit to doing this in a case where there was a lot of verbal and physical abuse and it didn't feel safe. 
But I can also think of other cases where I probably didn't fully show up as the best therapist that I could. Um, and then it's like, well, we're not making any progress. I think we need to stop. So what advice do you have to help clinicians avoid termination of rehab therapy? And when do you think it's appropriate to terminate therapy in the case of extremely poor insight and aggressive behavior? And are there any alternative routes we could consider for people? Right. Like so, so, so that you know, your first question about yeah, yeah, the answer is yes. I, I've had several therapists and, and, and especially in my role as a, a clinical director uh, in my last three or so years there happened a lot. And, and those are the, those are the, 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 the professional arguments that you have that that's hard. It's a hard sell. I mean, of course, as the director, I, I had to ensure the safety of the patient, but of course, ensure the safety of the therapist. I didn't want, you know, if, uh, if a patient was walloping on a patient, on a therapist, you don't want that. And that, 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 that therapist does not deserve that in any environment. So if, if there ever was a significant situation of behavioral issues, of physically or regularly verbally ag aggressive uh, uh, behaviors that were not thwarted by psychiatric medication intervention, if our, if our physiatrist would prescribe something that was not having a, an effect on, on calming or a mood stabilizing mood, the psychologist or other uh, uh, psychological therapist is coming in and developing a behavioral plan and that's not working, then number one, that person's probably not appropriate for that level of care. They may need to be more in a neurobehavioral type setting where the focus of, of the day-to-day -day is mostly on the behavior and modulating the behavior than some of the, the speech OTPT. You try to incorporate it as much as possible, but, uh, and there are programs like that. Um, so that's number one. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, if, if, if the therapist can explain that to me, that I, I feel threatened, I feel in harm's way, then of course, yes. If you need to uh, uh, stop therapy or, or, or discontinue, yes, that's understandable. Um, However, though, if it's, that's not the case, uh, when I was a director, I needed that therapist to be very clear to me what goals did you set in place and what goals are not being reached. And then I, the, the next question is, what have you done to manipulate or modify those goals that they could be probably more achievable given the behaviors that the patient's eliciting? And if you cannot, if that person could not give me the answer to that, then I would say, you need to go back to the drawing board and trying to come up with new goals because this person is here to reach those goals. We are a brain injury facility. We need to make sure that we are trying to hit as many goals as possible because this person will go home to that loved one or that household. And if they don't hit certain goals, it's gonna be, it's gonna be hard. So if you can't change those goals, if you could really sell that to me, then yes, I'd be open to discontinuing services. Uh, but if you can't, um, then we need to come up with a plan B because uh, that that's important. And it, it's a hard thing to swallow and I would get eyes rolled at me and, and so on, but, uh, which is understandable. It, it, you know, I, I, I give so much respect to all, you know, speech paths and OTs and PTs. It's so hard where, you know, as the psychologist, I was typically, you know, sitting in a room across the way from them, but the, you know, the, the PT OTs and speech paths, you guys are really, you know, in, 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 in the trenches, face to face with these individuals, especially the, uh, the PTs and OTs are definitely putting their hands on the patients more in terms of the, the therapy. It's hard. You know, it's not it's not fun when you have a person yelling at you in your ear or trying to spit at you or trying to hit you while you're trying to engage in, in those goals. It's very hard. So, again, uh, breaks are good. Setting uh, uh, certain criteria or uh, or uh, uh, rules with uh, the individual again, as you know, with a lot of our brain injured folks, especially the males and, and the female therapists, there was always a lot of you know sexual inappropriateness that that, that, that took place. 
Um, and it, it depended on the therapist, the level of comfort uh, in how they accepted that those those uh, 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 th- those uh, attempts and how they thwarted them. And you know, they put it down right away. And and the most effective female therapists were the ones that just looked right in that patient's eyes and said, "No, you will not do that." Yeah. And that worked the best. Versus, you know, Johnny, I that would, I really did not like the way you did that. And like, no, just as as you would not like any other any person to touch you. Period. Don't do that. Uh, and that worked the best. Um, so to go back to the original question, I, I think uh, there are certain circumstances where it's very acceptable to discontinue therapy, but you have to keep in mind, you have to think, am I doing this because I'm burnt out with this person or I really cannot achieve those goals? And if the, if the answer is yes to the first question, then say, you know what? I got to call in a recruit. I got to get in another therapist in here. We got to switch off because I've worked with this person for three weeks and I am burnt out on Johnny. I cannot, I just can't work with Johnny anymore. All right. Team meeting, Mm -hmm. uh, who can work with Johnny for a little while while I go work with someone else uh, for a a little while. And that's, that's, that's the better way to do it. I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the way that you're talking about it, like what, what a more powerful situation to be in. Like if you, if a clinician feels entirely alone and they're overwhelmed and they don't know how to manage this, it is very easy to be like, I, we're just going to cut off services for this particular therapy. But, and if there's no context of interdisciplinary collaboration or team collaboration, then there's, there's no other outcome. Whereas what you're talking about is challenging each other, empowering each other, um, supporting each other. And that's a totally different vibe. So I like that. Yeah, no, and again, it goes back to t- uh, uh, an interdisciplinary team, team communication. Uh, and again, uh, I saw, you know, the PTs, OTs, and speech. When I saw them having lunch together and, and spending time together, I knew that the team was definitely more cohesive and more solid. Mm-hmm. And there would be a lot more of, hey, you know, hey, Chris, um, you're, I, I could see that that patient, uh, Johnny, is really giving you a hard time. Look, I looked at my schedule. I could take Johnny at that hour if you want to take a patient so-and-so. And it, just that kind of back and forth, it was so successful in just helping, e- even if it was a one session, just to give that person some reprieve uh, from that, that particular patient was huge. And uh, so I, uh, uh, as when I was a director, I totally supported that and I would uh, uh, provide any kind of opportunities for, uh, uh, for meetings, lunch, and, and just to have people vent and just say, this is what I'm dealing with. And in a lot of cases... Uh, not that it was considered a therapeutic relationship, but we would have some therapists go to the psychologist or the counselors to say, look, I know you're not, I'm not saying you're my treating uh, uh, clinician, but I, I, I just need to vent to somebody. And, uh, and usually they went to go vent to the, the folks in psychology and, and uh, we made it very clear this is not a therapy session, but at the same token, let me see if I can help you, you know, maneuver some of the, these issues and give you some ideas on how to approach this with your your fellow therapists and uh, and, the, and the patient themselves. Yeah, that's awesome. Is there anything yeah. that I didn't ask you that you want to cover? I think we covered a lot of bases. Um, again, it's uh, I really think it's just I, I found it so interesting that you know here you are at a completely different part of the country and basically talking about the same problems and concerns that I witnessed here on a completely different side of the country uh, when working at a, at a brain injury facility. So I'm glad that 
there's a very clear understanding amongst all therapists that work in this field that there are these challenges are always there. And, uh, and I, I know that uh, these challenges uh, don't always get remedied uh, per facility, but it's just weird how the, the common thread is there, but each facility always has their difficulties and troubles. And uh, having worked at that particular facility for 14 so years, it felt sometimes that we never resolved all of them, uh, even though how many efforts were made. Uh, and there were, there were spurts. There were times when things worked out great, everyone got along and communication was great. And there were times when it didn't go well. Uh, and I think what the common denominator was is that you had different flux, uh, fluctuations of patients coming in. You know, when, when you had these more moderate to maybe mild patients, things were a little more calm and people were able to hit their goals. And, and there was a, a little bit more of a, wow, I did a great job with Johnny today because we were able to do all these things. And then you got that slew of admissions where the, the, the individuals were much more lower functionally, cognitively and physically. And you can see the stress levels pop up and the stress levels popped up in the therapist. Not, not that I ever saw them take it out on the patients, but you could they, they sometimes took it out on <laughs> the therapist in their communication. So so it, it's a I think it's going to be a problem that therapists deal with for a long time. Uh, but I think if with proper education, uh, with some level of implementation of psychology in these facilities, whether it's a contract person or a full time staff member, I think that's really a, a good way to address a lot of these issues and also team meetings, communication, regular weekly meetings with the team just to air out those issues about each particular patient and, and to, to work those out as best as possible. And that that really to me is what when when things were good and, and uh, uh, dare I say happy, uh, the workflow was the best, the patients got the best outcomes uh, and, and things worked out uh, a lot better. Awesome. Okay, the last question is always, what is your favorite book and why? And it can be related to what we've been talking about or completely unrelated. Just your favorite book. All right, so uh, is it okay if I give you two? Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right, so uh, from more of a, a, a book that I just enjoyed reading, uh, it was probably, um, I love the, uh, the Alienist by Caleb Carr. It was a book I read while I was an undergraduate in the 90s um, and uh, being from New York and uh, the way he uh, discussed sort of the historical uh, nature of New York back in the, the late 19th century to me was just amazing and uh, the, the way he threaded the psychological thriller aspect of the story uh, not that I'm going to give it away here but uh, but also in, in that setting in, in old time New York where I'm from so to listen and, and th this author Caleb Carr he did such a great job sort of describing the the history and, and the, the buildings and the locations, which, you know, later on in my, my adulthood, when I would visit, uh, it was just so interesting to, to see those locations. Uh, uh, in terms of a book more related to uh, brain injury, I think uh, Descartes' era by uh, Antonio Damasio is a great book because it really chronicles uh, sort of my favorite uh, uh, patient in, uh, in brain injury, uh, which, which is uh, Phineas Gage who was that individual who, uh, if you may recall from learning, it was had the, the railroad spike uh, go through his head. Um, and uh, I've always had a fascination with patients with frontal injuries and, 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 and understanding how they could be so functional and, and, and still have such a level of cognitive, uh, strong, cognitive strengths, but the behavioral and the personality aspect of their demeanor is so different or so varied uh, and how they encounter aspects of everyday life in such a different way than what they once did. 
um, despite the level of, you know, the awareness being there and everything. So, so I think the way that uh, Damasio discussed that uh, in, in that book uh, really just sort of helped give you a much better understanding of the, the neuroanatomy, but also the behavior. So to me, that was a great marriage of the two. And I really enjoyed that book as well. Hmm. To check it out. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate yeah. it. I always love talking traumatic brain injury. So it was great doing that with you. Is there any way that people can find you? Are you on Instagram or do you have a website or anything that you'd like to share? I'm on Twitter uh, at uh, DJs Galjardic. I'm also, uh, my website is, uh, so my private practice is Gulf Coast Neuropsychology. So you could find me at www.gcneuropsychology.com. Uh, I'm in private practice here in the Houston area. Uh, and again, uh, uh, you know, if, if folks want to reach out, have some questions after they look at my website or listen to this podcast, we'd be more than happy to, uh, uh, to discuss. And that is our episode for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining us. Really glad to have you here. If you like this conversation and you like this podcast, be sure to share it with a friend who might also get something out of it. If you like these conversations that we're having, you are going to love the Therapy Insights community. We are all about supporting speech, occupational, and physical therapists with really high quality resources to help you save time so you can focus on changing lives. We have tons of resources from patient education handouts, print and go therapy materials, quick evaluation tools, article snapshots, continuing education courses. Our library is absolutely packed. And we have amazing writers around the world that are helping us produce really wonderful content. And we have new resources for you every single month. So be sure to check out Therapy Insights at therapyinsights.com. And we will see you next time.